Welcome to Esther Dial Illusions, Episode 4, and our first A Song of Ice and Fire podcast, which I'm really excited for. Uh, we have a great guest here today, Chloe of Girls Gone Canon and a drunk A Song of Ice and Fire. Chloe, dude. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> yeah, I got it. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. I'm really excited because I know we've just been chatting about this for a while. Uh, so my name's Chloe. You can find me on Girls Gone Canon. We're a literary analysis podcast. We are currently covering A Song of Ice and Fire, point of view by point of view, where most people are doing chapter by chapter. We're doing someone's point of view chapters all in a row. We started with Eddard, with Ned, and currently we are actually at uh, Jon Snow. We just started. His first episode comes out this week. And you can also find me at Drunk Aswaf, Drunk A Song of Ice and Fire, uh, where I do a side podcast. I haven't been active there. It's kind of more of a fun in my hobby thing. And you can follow me on pretty much any social media at Lies and Arbor or Lies and Arbor Gold. I have a blog at liesandarborgold.com. And I, I just really have to give a strong endorsement of Girls Gone Canon. It's one of those podcasts where every time you listen to it, you learn something new. It's really, it's it's a great way okay. to get it. If you're a if you're a book fan, which I am, first show fan, distant second. But uh, it's really they they cover so much great stuff that you never think about. And I love the I love the format because you know point of view. When you do rereads of A Song of Ice and Fire, you never well. I guess some people probably read them cover to cover, but I like to just jump around with the point of views because you get it really stuck in your head, and it's a great way to it's a great way to go back to the series. Yeah, it really pulls out a lot of character analysis. It's a it's been a really fun ride doing that. Absolutely, we've had fun, and we uh, we just started Jon Snow. We're going to be starting another podcast on top of the main podcast during show season. We're going to be putting out just a review episode talking about the episode, some of the stuff that could relate to the book story, some of the stuff that might be made up, some of the stuff on Endgame, and just, you know, speculate and discuss stuff we like, stuff we didn't, and that will be out Tuesdays after each episode of Season 8. And we are announcing after that another new series. I can't give it away, but it is a book series. I can give that away. Well, we're certainly looking forward to that. The subject of today's episode is sexism and A Song of Ice and Fire. And the series has really been known for just the sheer number of great female characters. But if you read, you know, if you read about them, you learn that, A, the fandom has a few punching bags that it's fairly unfair, but that um, they really, they really do have to, they endure a lot of hardships within the series that the male characters don't have to uh be subject to and i wanted to take a look at a some of the really great female characters in the sh- uh, in the books and talk about all of them yeah i'm really excited about this uh some of these characters we don't see that internal viewpoint on the adaptation in the show so in the books you know there's just so much internalization that these women go through yeah and um the great, the probably the perfect place to start is uh, Sansa Stark, who really, especially with season eight starting, it's in particular, uh-huh. it's uh, you know, it's all starting again where people say, you know, why is Sansa still around? She's not going to do anything. Oh, she sucks. She's the worst. And it's horrible because she really, for all the for all the slack that Sansa Stark gets, she really is one of the most complex characters, and she's one of my favorite in the series. When people always you know she gets a uh, she gets compared a lot to Arya who's all over the place and you know does a lot of great stuff but 
Sansa Stark does something that her father certainly couldn't do, and that's survive in King's Landing. Yeah. I, some of the, the way the show kind of handled it, I don't love. I don't think a lot of people love. I think it could be a little bit better and could have been a little bit more thoughtful, but I do love the overarching message at the end of kind of how they came together in season seven. And I think that kind of embodies that speech that Ned gives to Arya in a game of Thrones when he tells her, you know, you may be mad at your sister, but you need her. She needs you. You're the same blood. You guys are the sun and the moon. You know, you guys complete each other. And that speech is great, especially because Ned tells Arya that she's in a viper's nest. You know, she is, it's dangerous here in King's Landing. But you know who he doesn't tell? Sansa. Yeah, and do you know what Sansa is? Engaged to the heir of the throne that happens to be like a crazy incest baby that's going to go on a murdery spree and eventually kill her dad. I mean, it's... Ned could have done a lot more. Uh, he should have, A, the girls should have come to King's Landing with a huge retinue. There's no lack of ladies in the North. When Marjorie Terrell arrives in the books, she comes with, you know, a lady from each of the big noble houses and some of the smaller houses around her in the Reach. You could have brought, you know, Beth Castle. You could have brought Barbary Riswell even. Uh, just so much you could have done. So many characters besides just Jane Poole and the 50 guards Ned brought. And... I think Sansa really gets looked down upon when in the books it's very fleeting, but she suffers even in King's Landing. She's beat almost every day by a different Kingsguard member. Like grown men, chainmailed, gloved hands, just beat the crap out of with big, huge swords. Yeah, Sansa's chapters in a Clash of Kings are particularly hard to hard to read, and it's it's so frustrating for all the for all the talk of Ned Stark's nobility and his honor and all of that. He, he's pretty much the worst communicator in the series. Ned frequently gets a pass for the amount of faith that he put in Littlefinger and Varys, largely because there you know, seemingly aren't that many people around to help him navigate the political realm of King's Landing. And yet he's got all these people in the north who he, for some reason or another, decides he's not going to bring with him. He brings, you know... I get, yeah. He doesn't trust those people, I guess, I get. But, like... I mean, you could have brought some lords with you to King's Landing. I don't know. It's an easy it's an easy way to score political capital. He doesn't even, you know, he doesn't he doesn't have his own sort of subsection of the small council where he has his people telling him what to do. And instead he trusts Varys who no one should have trusted. I mean, serves the mad king and just kind of sticks on and yeah. Littlefinger is is instantly very slimy, but he doesn't communicate with his own people, and he doesn't communicate with Sansa. And it's it's really, the more you think about the betrothal to Joffrey, and there's a lot of parallels with the way that Cersei kind of grew up thinking she was going to marry the king, but or Rhaegar first, then Robert. But it's really difficult to put yourself into the mind of a you know 12-year-old child who you know, is, is all of a sudden betrothed to the most powerful person in Westeros. And there's not really that point where she's pulled aside and said, you know, hey, this is a really big deal. And, you know, you got to watch out because people in power are, are have no shortage of people who want to knock him down and uh, take her out, which, you know. I mean, look at Olena after Marjorie is in court. After court, you see them talking in the show, especially that illustrate 
Olena and Marjorie's bond and Olena obviously tutoring her in the ways of court, in the way of how this noble society is run, you know, who's making deals in the back room. Sansa would go to court and her dad didn't want her at court. You know, her dad thought she was too young. Uh, I think the biggest thing that could have helped was him bringing people, you know, he could have brought Lord Umber. He could have brought great John, you know, he could have brought all these people South to show that he's serious business because no one took him seriously. He was just honorable, good old Ned. And in the end, his honor is what did him in. Uh, he wanted to save the children. It's, it's not that Ned is a bad dad. It was that he was not ready to have his daughters be politically apt in the capital. He personally wasn't politically apt compared to, you know, what he was dealing with. He was playing with big league and people that were bored. He was food for Littlefinger and Varys, and he was on a plate, and they were scooting it around with a fork, you know? Exactly. He was... And the weird thing about Ned was he was sort of woefully unprepared. I mean, I get that he spent a long time in the North not having to deal with any of those massive politics, aside from the the Greyjoy Rebellion, where he is then, you know, called upon to uh, foster Theon, but... You know, the fact that he's Robert's best friend after John Aaron, an old crusty man, who we'll talk about when we get to Lysa, <laughs> the fact that the fact that he's really the number two beyond that should have given him, hey, I need to be prepared if something happens to this sickly guy with the bad breath. You know, I may need to be called upon. And instead, you know, he lives a you know comfortable life in the North with not that many problems to deal with, but that obviously sets him up poorly for when he has to go to King's Landing and deal with all of the politics that are there. And it really sets it up well for his family and a lot of the problems and regression they face, not just Sansa, obviously Catelyn, even Arya, and of course the boys. Uh, And Ned really, he shouldn't have gone to the Capitol. I think that's really what it was. And look at what he learned from his dad and from Brandon and, you know, from John Aaron and from this whole Southern ambitions. Uh, If you haven't read it, check out Stefan Sasse's essay on Southern ambitions. You can find it online. I think it's on Tower of the Hand. And it's all about, you know, that these dads, Hoster Tolley, John Aaron, and Ricard Stark all pushed Southern ambitions on their children. Uh, That's why Catelyn Tolley was engaged to Brandon Stark. And that's why to keep those swords that they kind of paid for, for Robert's rebellion, Ned had to marry Catelyn. The theme of engagements that women get absolutely no say in is just rampant through basically every major female character in the series, from Catelyn to Danny to Sansa to, you know, even even people like uh, Lady Dustin and Lysa Aaron. They don't have any say, and they're expected to navigate all of these, you know, tricky political situations without really ever being handed the full deck of cards and there's no when it comes to Sansa there's no situation more apparent with that than when she goes to tell Cersei about Ned's plan basically doing the opposite of her father who tends to bottle up his emotions her instinct is to go and you know try and preserve the situation that she's been handed to her that for some reason with a father is still not really telling her what's going on is having it taken away from her and sent back to the north on a ship while, you know, shit's kind of hitting the fan. Yeah, there's a lot. That, that could have been avoided, but the bigger thing there is all she did was provide an exact time. Cersei knew because Ned told her. Ned straight up went to her yeah. and was like, hey, I know about your bastard incest kids with your brother. And then he was like, and 
I'm leaving and I'm taking my family home. So you better by the morning fess up or I'm telling Robert and then I'm splitting. And she's like, okay. It, it's hard to think of a single dumber political decision <laughs> made in the whole series. Like throw in, throw in the dance of the dragons, throw in fire and blood, <laughs> pretty bad. throw in everything. It's, 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 it's mind by it's, you know, the people who really sit and defend Ned, I look at them and I'm like, okay, you know, have your, have your fool in his honor. I, 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 I love Ned, I, but he should have and could have done better. And he knew that. And he was just trying to save the children. And again, that is a huge overarching theme in a game of Thrones throughout the whole entire song of ice and fire. Look at John with Gilly's baby. And, uh, it, it's just, he made the wrong choice because he didn't, save his children first he should have just shut his mouth and i think something that i found interesting was rewatching season seven when john if you guys are watching the show john you know tells cersei well i've already sworn to danny and everyone's mad at him but that's that same ned honor coming out you know where he he's just so honest so his uncle if only he hadn't trusted jano slint i mean who could have seen that one coming no right <laughs> I, he's such a weasel. Like, how could you look at him? Yeah, yeah. I, I I've reread I, my, one of my favorite points in the whole in the whole series is when John takes off his head in A Dance of Dragons. But you go back to the you know the scenes with Tyrion and Clash of Kings, or even the scenes with Ned, and it it, it just you know you almost want to claw at the pages and yourself, what the hell are you doing trusting this this slimy? Well, and uh, the worst part is when you get halfway through a Game of Thrones and you pay attention, and he gets his cloak changed out as a gold cloak he his cloak goes from just being plain gold but then he has a big golden brooch holding it to his outfit which signifies that the lannisters gave him that and that he's a lannister man this is like right before eventually when he turns you know so obviously it was little finger lannisters gave him a big gold brooch it's like probably worth i don't know like a handful of dragons i don't know how currency works there but yeah right and at no point does uh, Ned sort of think to himself, "Gee, maybe I should go to Jory Castle or somebody and tell this guy, figure out what's he, what's he really?" Because I mean, it, nope. it for all of Ned's enemies, it's pretty easy to plot against him because he's got nobody, nobody on the ground looking at you, nobody leaking to any of Ned's people. He's Peter just, showed him everyone. Uh, he was Ned. like, Peter and Varys were like, "These people are listening to you. Like you're gonna die." And Ned was like, "What?" I'm fine. I got this. I got shit to do. And I get it. I get that the whole end is like, he didn't want John to be revealed. He wanted to learn what this mystery was, which same exact story as John. The seed is strong. You know, ah, ah, it's a double theme. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just, it's a bummer. And it's a bummer that all of his actions also affected what we're going to talk about with our next person, Catelyn Stark. Yeah, Catelyn. Catelyn is another one who gets a ton of shit for from the fandom. And you look, and and all of her decisions, none of them are are are, are fundamental. Whether whether you agree with releasing Jamie or not, it, it's still it's it's rooted in rational yeah. logic. Versus it, you know, when Lord Karstark decides that he's just going to execute prisoners for no reason, you know, un unlike that, Catelyn did something that served a broader purpose, and yet. Oof, she gets uh she takes she takes a beating from the fan. Yeah, and sure. I so rereading these John chapters that we're doing on Girls Gone Canon, the John stuff is very, very real. You know, it's not okay how she treated him. I I love Catalin, but no, her treatment of John 
was inappropriate. And she knows it is. She thinks it is, though, is the thing. So there's a difference between somebody who pushes a kid out of a window and doesn't think about him more than one time in like five books. (laughs) I said out loud right now. (laughs) And this person who isn't on a redemption arc because he still has to strangle the fucking shit out of his sister. Let's just add that one to the list. Like, okay, sure. On a redemption arc. Anyways, I digress. I got a little off track. But so... There's a difference between that and there's a difference between Kettle and Stark. Now, how she made John feel is what's inappropriate and awful. Like, he literally feels cold and shaky and wants to cry when he's near her because of how cold she is to him. And obviously, during the brand stuff, that was a bit much, and she was obviously under stress. But compared to just when you look at Ned and what he did in King's Landing and... Catalan at least was there and she tried to be there for her children and she knew Rob needed her because he was just a boy. So she had to leave Winterfell and she had to leave Bran, who who knows when Bran was going to wake up. And Catalan was always torn between her family, her duty and her honor. That is kind of the, the downfall of her house Tully motto because she has embodied every part of it. And on this huge journey for her where she accompanies Rob after leaving her in a coma son and her husband is dead, and her daughters are captured or dead, or who knows where they are at this point. She leaves, accompanies her son, and she's torn between her family and her duty to her family and her honor. And there's this passage in A Clash of Kings that I love that starts off with her talking about how she's always done her duty. And she thinks about, you know, when her mom died and when she was promised to Brandon Stark and how she had just smiled and said, thank you. And then there's this part that's just so heartbreaking. I gave Brandon my favor to wear and never comforted Peter once after he was wounded, nor bid him farewell when father sent him off. And when Brandon was murdered and father told me I must wed his brother, I did so gladly, though I never saw Ned's face until our wedding day. I gave my maidenhood to this solemn stranger and sent him off to his war and his king and the woman who bore him his bastard because I always did my duty. (sighs) That's an interesting passage for a lot of reasons. The thing that has always stuck out with me with the, you know, Littlefinger being fostered at River Run, you know, there's a lot of parallels to the way that John is also kept at Winterfell among a lot of people that like him. But at the end of the day, he's still considered expendable and he's he's an outsider and he's othered. And regardless, you know, John has John's beloved by all the Stark children, but particularly hated by Catelyn. And Peter is a guy who was Catelyn's, you know, very close, close companion, somebody that they you know, there's a lot of affection there. And then there does come a point in time when he is no longer he doesn't fit the political equation anymore and honor and duty has to contrast with, you know, all the other emotions. Catelyn is somebody who constantly has to make the decisions in the here and now and not somebody who can kind of take a step back and say, let me think five moves ahead. No, I'm being hit with absolutely everything and I need to decide to do something now. And, you know, maybe it's not the perfect decision, but it's a decision that... Kills the least people. (laughs) Yeah, she's got a... And, and and she really is a brilliant tactician. She gets them through to... She has to deal with the most insufferable character. Well, not most, but one of the most insufferable. Uh. Walter Frey. A guy, a guy who's been nothing but trouble to her father. And, you know, she's got she's to navigate getting, you know, Rob's small army together after, you know, 
her, her husband's killed and they're thrown into a war they don't want to be a part of and she's desperate for allies and she does a pretty good job yeah she keeps it together and there's even in like her a storm of swords chapters have so much sad foreshadowing about the red wedding and there's that line about how her heart turned to stone and just the rains and how weary she is and I think we're going to get into this in a bit with Ashara Dane when we do talk about her. Just a little tease because you can't have a podcast with me without Ashara Dane, obviously. (laughs) That's why I'm hired, right? Uh, I'll take my $7,000 after the podcast. Thanks. (laughs) No, uh, but imagine that you're Catelyn Stark and, you know, the guy you're supposed to marry that you finally have been like, all right, I could deal with this guy for the rest of my life. Like I could bump uglies with him until I die and give him some babies and squish him out of there. Cause you know, it's all like watermelony. I don't know. Um, and, <laughs> but imagine you're like ready to go and he dies. And so then you're told you have to marry his brother, which like, I'm not saying Ned's not an uggo or anything, right? Like Ned's like, you know, he's okay looking. He's decent looking. He's, he's doable here. And she's just like, but he's quiet. He's solemn. He's the quiet wolf. And he's also like bathing in 20 shades of trauma because as we know, he carried his sister's kid all the way to Winterfell. But along with along with her, his sister's bones. Yeah. And his sister's bones. His best friend came and his best friend's wife with her baby. But we're not going to go into that right now. And <laughs> they stopped at Starfall first. Okay. Uh, just saying, yeah. just saying, how else did they get booby milk? You know, like I'm just saying it was a Shara's, uh, yeah. But imagine, you know, you come home and you get home to Ned Stark in Winterfell where you have to live for the rest of your life. Cause you just married this bitch with your baby on your hip because he knocked you up before he went to war. So you got all fat and gross and whatever and pushed it out and you show up home and he's already got a fucking dark haired little Stark looking kid on his hip that he fathered quote-unquote in the war that's and everybody says it's ashara first off like everything liana stark like i love her to death but man that girl with her irresponsible choices to go off with Rhaegar targaryen uh left a lot of awful trauma in its wake because catalin was left to bear the weight of liana stark's son like she didn't birth that motherfucker but she sure had to bear that weight you know and she had to bear it without actually being told who the hell the kid is. I mean, and wouldn't you act a little uh, passive-aggressive for the most of your life? <laughs> and from all... Yeah, and from from all we know of Brandon Stark, he's, you know, this type A guy, grew up being an heir. He's the jock jackass that you're like, all he's right, great. I guess I'd have sex with him. Yeah, and then Ned is supposed to be the timid, you know, listens <laughs> to the Cure, broods. Dude, he listens really. to a lot of Cure. And, uh, a lot. Yeah, and then you come out and then, uh, you know, you, you marry him and you find out that, oh, actually, he's not this sort of he's not just a timid person. He's also, you know, in love with somebody else. And he, he brought he brought his other baby for you to you to deal with. That's the thing is like Ned never said it was Ashara's, but he never said it wasn't. He just told her stop talking about it. OK, so I'm just saying that puts that puts a lot on a woman. On a person, you know, just knowing that that's probably like without that denial, that's probably who cheated. He cheated on me with. I don't it's a lot. And I get it because, you know, he promised Liana that he would keep John safe at all costs and protect who he truly is, you know, until the time was right or, you know, just keep him safe. Whatever he promised her, that's fine. But you're hurting other people. It's a real shame that Maester Lewin wasn't, he didn't have a chain for marriage counseling. <laughs> yeah. Because he, 
he really could have uh, he could have helped with the communication. I mean that 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 to me will always be Ned's greatest downfall was you know he's when the going gets tough he puts the headphones on and he starts listening to the Cure and he doesn't talk to people. Yeah, absolutely not. Ned is a uh, Ned's one of those assholes with the wireless Bluetooth earpods. Yeah, he just he doesn't he could solve so many of his problems if he just pulled somebody aside and said, "Hey, here's what is up. Here's what's happening. Here's what he you need really to do." He really needs to talk to someone about it. Is how I feel reading the first book because he's having some weird nightmares. I don't know. I don't know. He didn't. You know, he could have ridden on his horse from Starfall back to Winterfell, looking at Tumblr posts, and really could have learned that you know there's a lot of people out there like him, and you just need to open up a bit. Yeah. But um, work at it next reincarnation, Ned. <laughs> <laughs> so Catelyn, Catelyn gets a lot of shit, but I mean, she she really she's a person who constantly, even just from Robert's Rebellion on, there's never really a point from a game from Robert's Rebellion through. I mean, from what we know of her, from that point through the Red Wedding, where she's not constantly being expected to react to just constant chaos around her that she's only got a little bit of control over i mean at the end of the day she she's still at the mercy of what people around her are going she to had allow. she had nine good years she had nine solid years after the Greyjoy rebellion she had nine years until robert Rebe- robert baratheon showed up at her door and was like hey ned come south and ned goes south and like like i've said lately ned couldn't even get to king's landing before the lannisters started their bullshit you know like he couldn't even get there the the car trip wasn't even over so that sucked uh catalan had nine solid years for her to grow into a rhythm of this is nice this is what it's like this is what our relationship should be like you know we built this love we don't i don't look at him and think like oh i'm lusting after your sexy dad bod but i think he's good i think we love each other we make love sometimes we respect each other we got these kids our life is good and happy here while ned on the other hand is of course hiding layers and layers of trauma keeping his family close to him not warding any of his kids out uh, not getting them trained politically, keeping them very classically educationally trained. It's just a lot of, uh, Catalan's a Southern influence, people always say, but then when you look at characters like Sansa, Sansa resembles her dad a lot more than anything, right? Like, she is honorable and honest, and she hates lying. She learns to lie, but she's not good at it. Uh, it's just like Ned. You know, it's that innocence, that naivety, and that hope that things will just get better, and that rose lens, and... Catelyn is different. She has the shrewdness, and her survival technique is a lot harder head-on, you know? That's a, that's a really good comparison because Sansa, I mean, she's just, you really, you, the saddest chapters in A Clash of Kings and A Storm of Swords are just when she's, you know, waiting for that loser, Serdantos, to sort of spout bullshit to her. And, you know, she's got to deal with all of that horrible King's Landing situation and you just you've got to you would just it would have been so great if she could just have a friend there just one but sadly sadly jane Poole had uh other other obligations literally her by, only uh, friend right now isn't even her friend miranda royce is just investigating her yeah it's it's really it's brutal but uh hopefully hopefully the winds of winter have some uh great things in store for sansa because i don't know how, i don't know how much more yeah we can expect her to take i it's think really, the winds of winter is going to be at the end of the book, Sansa, when she arrives in the north, and then the middle of a dream of spring, her and Daenerys 
the next person we're going to talk about, will be braiding each other's hair in Winterfell. <laughs> I think that is a scene we're going to get in A Dream of Spring. Uh, if you don't believe me, you're under arrest, and that's that. Speaking of Daenerys, she's another... You know, one of the things, when people ask me what's the big difference between the books and the show, one of the things that I sort of instantly gravitate to is Daenerys, you know that girl that is, you know, uber-sexualized from the first episode of the show? She is... 13 in the books and she's got she's got a whole calisar going after her and if that's not bad enough there's Ser Jorah just constantly creeping there yeah. it's 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 it you know the 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 dothraki see it's some of my favorite chapters just because um it, it's great you know the end of viserys is a lot of fun because he's a horrible character and you really see the formation of daenerys that you know, plays out for the rest of the series, but God, that it's just, it's, it's so brutal. The, the scenes in the books where she and Drogo are first married and she's got to, she, she has to learn, you know, the things that they're telling her and you're constantly in the back of your head is like, okay, this is a, you know, this is a girl who's not legally in America allowed to give consent. You're telling her, Oh, the way you get this, you know, big massive warlord to respect you is you have to flip over and so he can look at you like good god it's yeah it's, it's brutal and imagine being 13 you know and that like that's that's brutal she was sold for an army of horse lords she and it's interesting because now where she's grown in the series uh she's kind of like what she's eventually going to embody is this young female stannis right but more easily likable and she has boobs as the fandom will be want to point out um, <laughs> She, Daenerys does take a lot of flack and it's like you either love her or you hate her. And I think that's such a unreasonable way to fathom her as a character. I'm, I'm very, I like Daenerys. I love her chapters. I think they're great chapters. I'm more middle of the road when it comes to, you know, do I love her? Do I hate her? I like her. I don't love, love, love her. I, I do love her, but I don't, it's a weird affair, right? Like I, I like her and I tend to lean towards loving her, but I'm still in the like. She does have some issues. I don't think she's going to go mad queen. I think she is going to go north to save the whole entire universe. She's the other savior of the story. It's about the song of ice and fire. Uh, but she catches so much bullshit just because she's a woman. That's literally it. That's all it is. She's a woman with three dragons. So everybody just wants to criticize her. And it's like, she literally has three dragons. Shut up. Yeah. It's, it's really, her, her gender really comes into play in both the, the entire Karth dynamic and the entire Marine dynamic, because you, she just has to, especially in Karth, she's at kind of everybody's mercy because she's only got about 50 Dothraki with the show, which the show just kind of gets rid of by season <laughs> three. But for that, that's always bothered me, but it, it, it's such a, it's such a struggle for her to have to, you know, grow as a character while constantly always being an inch away from death at, at every turn. She's, you know, one wrong decision in Karth gets everybody killed. And then she has to, she's constantly forced to make these sort of rough political decisions where she puts her faith into people who could just decide, Hey, I'm going to screw you. But you know, she learned so much in the process. The Miranese political dynamic in A Dance with Dragons is probably some of my favorite parts of the entire series. It's just so rich. And the Danny, the Danny Hisdar dynamic in particular is my favorite because at that point she's kind of found she's got she's got Dario, she's got somebody who she cares about. She's got suitors in Quentin who she can disregard and 
you know, it's always nice when, I mean, as bad as it, bad as it is to have to, you know, turn somebody away, it's kind of nice that they came knocking at all. And then there's his dar, who it, there's something somewhat just oddly empowering about the the idea that 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 kind of uh, political marriage with all the other ones where women are forced into them. You know, she she's obviously there. It's advantageous to do it, but it's still she she maintains so much agency over the choice. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what the exact quote is, but I think it's really the biggest interest is that she has Aegon, which of course most people think uh, fake Aegon, which is Aegon. obviously true. <laughs> but there's this quote Tyrion has in a, a Dance with Dragons where you know he talks about how she's. You know, I know that she's proud. I know that she's suffered. I know that, you know, and of course, why wouldn't she be proud because of how she suffered? And he goes through exactly what Daenerys has been through and how she's lived forever with knives hired at her back. And above all, I mean, she has a good heart. She's trying to free the slaver cities of slavery. I mean, you don't just try to abolish slavery for no reason. There's obvious many many economic benefits in it most like mostly free labor uh that's pretty cool i guess i've heard you know from slavers like jorah mormont but <laughs> it's a uh, got him uh it's just a bummer i mean we're gonna talk on that relationship too with daenerys and jorah layer that's an interesting one daenerys is definitely i think there's a lot in fire and blood what they've added to the princess and the queen story with Rhaenyra that's added a lot of stuff that's added for us to make us think about Cersei, but a lot to think about Daenerys too. Daenerys, I think in the end of history will be presented like this very gray character, but we have had all these insights to her heart and to her knowing like she obviously just wants to go home to any home to have a home again. She really doesn't want Westeros for the power for the greed. She wants it because her family once held it and she is searching for that family and seeking for it, which is what's so important about that whole song of ice and fire thing of her finding John, who's the ice to the fire. I mean, I don't love Janeris. I just, I get it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's, it speaks to her character that, you know, Marine is always going to be this, you know, temporary home for all the fun politics and all that. I mean, it's, it's not her end game, obviously. And yet she's still trying to make a difference. And I mean, if you look at, there's so many wars that are sort of founded on the false idea that you can just come into some place and change all their culture, even if it, uh, you know, as, as challenging as, as it is, there's something just inherently noble in the idea that she is coming to this place to make a difference. She's embraced by the people at the end of a storm of swords. She sees, she's, she's not constantly thinking about, you know, the, the end game in Westeros, but she's seeing good that can be done there and she's, she wants to make a difference. Yeah, she's trying to replicate her rule first there before she hits Westeros. And I hate that whole idea. Eliana and I actually discussed this in an episode of that. Some people like to say that it's like her playground before she goes to Westeros, but that's not fair. You know, that colonialism that she's bringing to this country of color. And there are kind of obvious flaws in what she's doing there. Uh, she's not doing the right thing. She's not forcing her culture though. And she's not forcing, uh, she's not one that's ever going to force her culture. She's not that kind of person. She's obviously trying to just abolish slavery. Yeah. And she, she takes advice of the people who are there to, you know, not completely force things because, you know, it's, 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 it's a, 
she's one of those few people who's really trying to be a good roller, unlike, you know, a Joffrey who doesn't give a shit or yeah. whatever the hell Balon was trying to do. Or, or sadly, Renly. Maybe it's <laughs> just because they're females, but I feel like all these female rulers have to work double time. There's never a point where she's not going to be some object of desire to people. Yeah, she's the last of the dragons, first off, so she's fetishized. Like, when you said overly sexualized earlier, I love that because she obviously is, but she's also overly just fetishized. She is Valyrian, you know, she's otherworldly, she's ethereal, she has purple eyes, she has dragons. Uh, Who wouldn't want to sleep with that? That's literally power. That's fire, you know, in in your wombs. Yeah, and to have to have the dragons and to not, you know, just go around burning everything in your path is uh I mean it speaks a lot to her character. She's got a lot of depth. I mean, I, I agree with you. She's not my absolute favorite, but I, I just love to I love to read her chapters yeah. because there's always the 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 conflict in it is always so rich and there's always a hundred different ways to look at it. It's 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 tricky and she's one of those people who's constantly just trying to do right, which, you know, not everybody's going to always do the right thing. There's always going to be something that people say, you know, I don't agree with that. But when it comes to Danny, you, her, her heart's in the right place. Unlike, you know, Jorah Mormont. Whose yeah. Heart doesn't, he doesn't have one. <laughs> right. Next up is Lysa Aaron. Another, you know, she doesn't get a ton of shit from the fandom because most people just kind of hate her. And that's that. There's not a lot of, uh, She's a difficult character to defend because she she's not likable. She and you know she's a she she's in cahoots with Littlefinger, who's also very unlikable. But the more you the more time you spend with Lysa, the more you understand that she's another character who's constantly dealt a bad bad hand. And even if she made some bad decisions, there's a lot of them that I, I really can't blame her. I I don't blame her for killing John Aaron. Uh, not the nicest thing in the world. <laughs> not the nicest thing in the world to do. Um, True, but I guess I feel that big energy. And then you know the the one the one decision of hers that I agree with completely is not getting involved in the War of the Five Kings. The idea of a sister who you weren't really that close with, although you sent the weird letter warning her about the Lannisters, and then that sister shows up on your doorstep with the son of the most volatile, crazy, just scary person in the whole realm, uh, you know, Tywin Lannister, who can just, you know, send the mountain after you. You got to be, if you're, if you're the ruler of the Vale and Tyrion Lannister, a captive Tyrion Lannister shows up at your doorstep, you're not going to roll out the red carpet <laughs> to the moon door and say, yeah, let's toss this guy out of here. It's, 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 I, I would be so pissed if my sister brought some, you know, prized captive and said, yeah, let's, let's, let's try him here and let's do it quickly before, well, I guess she was the one who said that no, uh, that Jamie Lannister couldn't come to mm-hmm. Tyrion's defense, but it's just a very messy situation. It's a, it is messy. On that same note, I do think that it's unfair for Liza to incite the war by telling Catelyn, hey, the Lannisters killed my husband. Like, you know, blah, 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 be careful. And then completely say, oh, well, good luck. Like, that is I mean, bullshit. That's bullshit. It is. Right there. But but I do agree because it is safer for the veil. The veil's impregnable. And the bigger thing there is that is the part of Liza's cowardice. Like, we know right there, like, she turned up the war yet at the same time. She wanted it. The right. bigger told her, don't do anything, don't do anything. Uh, which that's the messed up thing. There are people I know that like literally stand. They love Littlefinger. I don't, 
I don't understand how. Oh, yeah. He is a sex trafficker of little girls. He fucking, like, he completely, like, psychologically manipulated Liza more and more and more until she did all this fucked up shit, like, murder for him. Like, he's fucked up. But Liza is one more example of the characters that have been forced to marry for an alliance between their families, like we talked about, uh, part of that Southern ambitions we referenced. And Hoster Tully, holy shit, what the fuck wouldn't he do for that family to resecure power? Like, that's... Yeah. Dude, that's fucked. It is, and it's, you know, with regard to Lysa, she, you know, she gets into a forced abortion over, which is just, you know, unbelievably traumatizing. Which leaves her broken enough for Peter to fucking manipulate her about it. Yeah, and then on top of that, she's got all those stillborn kids by a husband who, is sharing a bed with John Aaron, if you read any description of him, it's Ugh. just, the dude's revolting. He really is. And that's not like a knock on his character or anything, but at the end of the day, you know, it's hard to believe what what character would willingly sort of line up to marry that guy, to tap that. Like, why would you have sex with someone you don't want to have sex with? That's, that's where it lies. She doesn't want to have sex with them and she had to. And she, she's constantly having these stillborn babies of this sick, gross man. It's, it's, when you look at every of the, the, and, you know, the, the, the notion of being, you know, sort of, sort of manipulated by Littlefinger, obviously he was fucking with her, but at the same time, you know, here's this guy that she grew up with has, has, you know, tons of affection for him. And now he's back in the equation after all those years with John Aaron, I I don't really blame her for just wanting some simple companionship after being uh, put through all of that. And with regard to the, you know, the letter, it's so hard, but the 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 Robin Aaron the uh, the sweet Robin fostering is one of those things that you know the, the the idea that he was potentially either sent to Tywin or to Stannis and that that was you know something that people weren't really on the you know weren't really clear about is gets all the sort of fan attention because it's fascinating but at the same time you know the bigger question for Lysa is is my son gonna survive being raised by either one of these men Mm -hmm. and the answer really to that is probably not i mean he's still suckling at her teeth it's gross but um yeah it is what it is he he really can't stand on his own two feet no she's a mother she's a mother he's she's lost so many other kids she's gotta you know she's gonna protect him with everything if that means killing john aaron to to protect him i mean so far she's done a pretty good job of that he's still alive yeah, I mean, I'm sure that is what Peter helped convince her of. And the saddest is we were really lucky in our Sansa outro episode in A Storm of Swords with that last chapter. We had Lady Gwyn from Radio Westeros on, and she gave us the best dramatic reading of the passage with Liza ever. So I'm going to have to like try to recreate this. I don't know if I can. She's pretty good. But this is just one of the saddest. This is like, I call this the broken woman passage because it's really what it is. Liza breaks at the end of this passage right before she dies. And it's the most pathetic shit. No! Liza gave Sansa's head another wrench. Snow eddied around them, making their skirt snap noisily. You can't want her. You can't. She's a stupid, empty-headed little girl. She doesn't love you the way I have. I've always loved you. I've proved it, haven't I? 
Tears ran down her aunt's puffy face. I gave you my maiden's gift. I would have given you a son, too, but they murdered him with moon tea, with tansy and mint and wormwood, a spoon of honey and a drop of pennyroyal. It wasn't me. I never knew. I only drank what father gave me. <sighs> so sad. It's like the saddest shit in the world. It's so pathetic. It's, it's a lot like Jane Westerling, too, in this kind of notion with what her mom did to her. And you see so much sort of Stockholm syndrome in her fate too, because she, she's for so many years been forced to accept the notion that she has to kind of, you know, please whatever suitors thrown at her, and and she's still sort of wrapped around the idea of you know, I've proved it. She's yeah. she's she's head of she's head of you know she's head of the Vale and Littlefinger. You know he's got his Lord of Harrenhal title, but you know he a, ain't a big, shit. Yeah, and a big theme of Littlefinger is just the notion of, you know, whatever whatever he's built, he's still lowborn. Low, he's still lowborn. He'll always have that chip on his shoulder, and yet when it goes to the Lysa Peter relationship, she she just has this deference to him that, you know, if you imagine like Danny in her shoes, she'd just say, "Hey Littlefinger, fuck off." You know. Well, that's the thing is it's about power. Littlefinger knows he can prey on her that he has more power than Liza has because she's weak in his eyes. She's broken. So he sees that as an easy target. She's an easy target for him to just vampire suck that energy out and use her power and her station. We yeah, see that yeah. obviously because he's now Lord Protector of the Veil and she's dead. And I mean, her fate, it's so, it's so, um, there's so much thrown at the reader just from the perspective of the, the end of the John Aaron murder mystery, which I mean, the show doesn't really do. I, that, I mean, it doesn't really play up that much, but there's so much thrown at the reader, especially the fact that she's kind of going for Sansa at that point that, you know, so by the much time misdirection. She, yeah. And it's, it's hard to, you know, there's almost kind of a relief of like, okay, Sansa's, Sansa's okay. Her aunt's dead, but Lysa, Lysa, Lysa's a complex character. It's very, I, I don't, I, I, I don't really like her, but I feel sorry for her. And I, I think that she's a stronger political force than people give her credit for. She's just, yeah. you know, you have that many stillborn kids. You have a forced abortion. You have to be married to a crusty old creep. Uh, I mean, and you survived this long? Yeah, that's pretty yeah. impressive. I agree. It, uh, she and it, it would have been the 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 War of the Five Kings, especially from the northern perspective. Just, I I think it was kind of doomed from the start. River Run is a very difficult place to defend. I think she looked at that situation and said, "Hey, I have the least the you know least penetrable." place of them all i'm just gonna chill here i'm not gonna go help sorry i'm not gonna send all my men to the death winter's coming and uh, i'm gonna be nice and warm here goodbye (laughs) right good for her i get it i get it i do you know i I just and especially you just you read the chapter where they decide that rob is now king it's it's really it's made on a whim and it's something that i imagine a lot of the lords the next day woke up thinking gee what did i agree to like rob's king now yeah. It, it, it's just it's thrown at people so much that you know lisa that's a tough decision to make to say hey i'm not gonna get the gang back together we're not gonna do another one of these rebellions sorry i'm gonna sit this one out it speaks to her political intelligence to not go down that rabbit hole yeah she definitely was very uh wanted some self-sustainability and i i respect that for sure Okay, asha Greyjoy. boy she is honestly asha Greyjoy. what a woman yeah, it's really 
she's she's a perfect contrast to Theon in just so many ways because she's um I I think about Asha a lot in regards to like my own transition because she's somebody constantly she has the 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 notion of a son projected on her so often yeah and you know but it's 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 always at the other person's convenience they 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 you know want her to be the son that uh Balon didn't really get to have and yet she's not she's never gonna you know that that's only gonna go as far as it you know will prevent her from actually winning the king's moot she can only be who she is yeah and it it it, even you know rereading some of her uh passages with stannis she she says you know make me your man and stannis says you know the gods did not make you a man how can i you know he's not heard of uh, HRT or tes- testosterone injections. I don't think the maesters do that. Dude, the Citadel's hiding it. I've heard. Probably. I've heard. Mar- Marwin. Marwin's got his glass candle. Marwin's his, experimental you know. as fuck. He'd be into it. It's just like a big travel thing, you know? I would, uh, yeah. I've always wanted to do a paper on, you know, uh, gender gender theory in A Song of Ice and Fire. It's like, where do you start? I love that, especially because you have characters like uh, obviously various with his disguises, but also just in general, he has the powders and different things and he kind of plays around with outfits. But you also have um, Lysono. Lysono. Mar? Yep. Yep. They, um, well, Varys in particular, I always try to explain to people, like, that sort of that's where the, my knowledge of uh, endocrinology is you know, useful that, that and the unsullied because people just, they think, you know, eunuchs, um, you know, conniving person as as somebody who used to have testosterone in them and, you know, doesn't anymore. You don't, you don't, you don't become like some asexual sort of blob when you're, you know, when you have that stuff gone, you still remember what it, what it felt like. He's still, he's still a sexual person. They attach so much importance to the idea of, you know, losing a manhood or losing something. And there's just so many pieces are left. It's like uh, it's like not to not to talk Avengers, but you know the the scene with Vision and the removing the Infinity Stone. There's still a lot left. Yeah, maybe the best part. Maybe the best part, <laughs> like the Infinity Stone hole. Wait, yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he can survive without his stone. Without his stone. Well, Asha. Asha's great. I think we have a lot more to talk about in a bit about her, but I do think it's important, like what you were saying, all of this projected on her to be that last son and be the, uh, to put it in terms my co-host of Girls Gone Canon, Eliana would say, she would start singing Reflection from Mulan. I don't know if you're familiar, but <laughs> yeah. that's kind of how it is. I mean, I also think there's an interesting transition between the way George wrote Asha in Theon's chapters in the beginning of The Clash of Kings and throughout Clash of Kings, uh, and the difference between when we get her own chapters, Asha is uh, sensitive, very, she's, she's self-conscious. Uh, she's, you know, always trying to live up to her father. We get a different Asha when we get to the later chapters. In Theon's chapter, she's not that same person. From the outside, she's this confident, laughing, like, hussy, you know? Like, that's what Theon imagines her as, and that's not it, Chief. That's not it. Yeah, throughout and and you really throughout her own point of view chapters, you really grow to respect her proficiency as a leader because she's constantly looking out for the well-being of her troops. She's not she you know, she's somebody who understands what the value of a life is. Queen of the Iron Islands, and, am I right? 
Yeah, I really, you know, it would have been nice if, you know, Euron had stayed wherever he was. Uh, maybe it would have been nice if he actually was Dario and just didn't come back. Okay, um, also, though, leave Daddy alone. Yeah. Um, she, <laughs> Asha, Asha's just, she's, she's put through so much when, you know, at the end of the day, she can just look at the circumstances in the Iron Island. Things are, you know, her, her, she's somebody who has to kind of live in the moment because you look at the long game, you're wondering, you know, what, what, where's my place in all of this? And I mean, obviously things would be different if, uh, Balon hadn't been killed, but, um, you know, having to navigate a post-Euron world has just got to be yeah, wild. unbelievably yeah, demoralizing and hard. And, you know, she, she, she's not a broken person. Her, you know, even when she's captured, at, you know. She's got a great spirit, her. doesn't she? Even when she's captured, like even when Stannis has her, she's keeping up in her POV. Yeah, she's still like, she's still a force. She's still looking out for her people. She's still, you know... She she's not a broken captive. She's saying to Stannis, "Look, I I have you know submitted to you, but uh, take these chains off. I'm not going anywhere." Yeah, like I can at least and give Stannis, you some answers. Yeah, and Stannis just kind of looks at her, and he he doesn't know what to do with her because here's this you know strong-willed woman, and Stannis is just a Stannis kind of a doesn't awkward, know uh, women. No, sadly, he doesn't yeah. know how woman woman exists. As Stannis is like what. He uh he gets a little gets a little confused, but uh Asha knows how to navigate his camp. She's got uh um Alana Alana Mormon is one of that's her name, right? Uh Alisane. Um, Alisane Mormon. Yep. There we go. The uh she uh her her chapter, I mean the her interactions with Asha are also uh very interesting because House Mormon for all the losers on the male side has all these strong-willed women. And Asha kind of, there. there's a sort of, you know, not affection there, but uh, kind of an understanding that they're in this camp and, you know, they're both kind of smarter than, you know, Justin Massey or the Clayton Suggs around them. Yeah, absolutely. Not hard, but I mean. No, no, that's not a... And it, 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 it's gotta be, it's gotta be so unbelievably hard to be in that traveling camp, knowing that A, they don't have a ton of supplies and B, they're, you know, marching on Winterfell, which may be in ruins, but that's not, you know, and you're dealing with a guy who doesn't know the North. He's got, you know, a ragtag bunch of allies and he's got the also disgusting and gross Arnolf Karstark, you know, pretending he's a friend. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a messy, messy situation. And Asha, yeah, the North is a fucking mess right now. Yeah, and Asha's got basically no cards left, and she still keeps her head high. She's got, you know, she's down to eight or nine, eight or nine men left, and she's still, she's still concerned about them. She's still seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, yeah, she definitely rules well, especially because she rules ahead. Like you were saying, she, uh, she looks ahead. It's, it's, it's a very. I mean, I, I'm I'm somebody who I've always kind of struggled with Theon. He's a he's a he's a tough. I mean, he's I, definitely he, a tough cookie. He's hard to love. Yeah, he's an acquired taste. Um, and Asha, I just look and I think to myself, here's a female character that's so unlike all the other ones that we have. Is just so strong-willed. I mean, well, not that that you know, there's plenty of strong-willed people, but 
that 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 culture of the Iron Islands that really is is off. I mean, you look at what Victorian, what happened to his wife. It's just bru- it's just needlessly brutal. Yeah. And then there's Asha thriving in all of that chaos. And I just I, I can't help but tip my hat to her. Although I don't really wear her. Asha's interesting because you get that line and she's so sensitive on the inside, like we're saying, right? Like she's soft and fleshy on the inside and a fully fleshed out character. But on the outside, she's steel. She's hardened. And you get that scene where she tells Theon, yo, you really need to go visit our mom. Like she thinks you're dead, like the rest of her sons. You need to go visit her. She's she's very three-dimensional. And George has done a great job about that with many of his characters, whether they are ladies in distress or whether they're warriors or evil queens even yeah she's really i mean it it seems kind of cheap to you know like think about what it means just to be ironborn but she she she's like more so than uh a lot of the characters she really born to adapt to the circumstances that are put around her while also retaining just the the core of her humanity she's still a caring person even though you know, you know, it's something. It's something I like the Victorian chapters a lot because he's got a, a lot of depth to him. Even though you know he's kind of yeah. introduced in a way that doesn't make the whole stuff with his wife will always bother me. But um, he he's a guy who he's got his uh, you know the circumstances of the just the culture of the Iron Ironborn, and yet he's still you know deep down there's there's more to him there. But uh, Asha's Asha's one of my favorite female I love characters her. in a Song of Ice and Fire. And I'm not even a big fan of the Ironborn, but uh, I really loved her chapters. Yeah, they're great chapters. That's the one nice thing. There aren't really any female chapters that are boring, in my opinion. No, they really, and I would love like a, I would love a Mage Mormon chapter, if only if like half the thoughts could be like, what a shit Jorah was, and what an idiot uh, the old bear was for the Great Ranging. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um. We have more on. You want to talk about Carl the Maid at all? Um, I love Carl the Maid. We should talk about Carl the Maid. I guess that Carl the Maid is like Asha's one true childhood slash now sweetheart love, and he is so representative of like soft, sweet, innocent times. He has that peach symbolism. Her and Carl went on the barges when they were raiding out in you know the arbor, so she would feed him peaches and peach juice would dribble down his chin down his little peach fuzz and you know it's just that whole like innocence and innocence lost kind of theme that a song of ice and fire offers and they have a really good sex scene i guess her cunt became the world whatever uh i just i love carl the meat i do i i love him he's a good boy you know, he's one of those characters that you'd almost expect would have you know died this horrific death at Deepwood Mont. For her, like for her, which is what makes me think like there's all these theories. You've probably heard them that she's pregnant with his kid. Uh And that like that kid will end up being the heir to the Iron Islands after everything's all said and done after she's queen in the end because she should be because Asha, Asha queen. Uh, Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe Carl Asha love baby. I'd be into that. I don't really love that theory, but it seems like it might be a thing because it just like how her wins winter excerpt is and all this. I think it could be a thing. So we'll see. We'll see someday. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, hopefully Carl gets a happy ending. Although, yeah. You know, George R. R. Martin is not necessarily known for that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. But, uh, and, and, you know, hopefully uh, Clayton, Clayton Suggs dies a uh, horrible death because he's gross and because uh, he one of my he Clayton Suggs 
Yeah, definitely. He's terrible. I, I love a lot of Stannis' tertiary characters. Roland Storm is one of my uh, oh, yes. favorite sort of bizarre sort of side. You know, it, it's hard to have, you know, tons of affection for characters like that or at the end of the day, you know, how much has he truly done? But just the idea of him fighting, uh, the idea of him fighting Loras in single combat just always makes me, that's one that I like to think about even though it probably didn't happen. Who the hell knows what happened to Loris? <laughs> I think he's probably still alive, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, hopefully Sir Sir Roland Storm is doing well, but uh, he's not female, so we don't need to talk about him hell in this, no. this particular context. But we should yeah. keep talking, and we should chat about Cersei, I think, next. Yeah, Cersei... Cersei's another one... I, the thing above all else that... there's two, There's really two things about Cersei that stick out to me is... You know, people go so over the, you know, Sansa, a lot of people uh, hate on, but Cersei, Cersei, they, the, the sort of the vitri, it's like, it's like sometimes guys get that, they feel like they have free reign to just, you know, because the words like bitch and all of that are, you know, thankfully not being thrown out as much in uh, modern you know, conversation as they used to be. When it comes to Cersei, they're like, oh, I hate that bitch. Oh, she's the worst. Ah. Yeah. And... And they also, and then, and then the flip side is like the one defense that people want to offer to Cersei is, oh well, at least she loves her children. Even if we, even if we were to accept that, I look and say, no, that's not her only attribute. Her, her, her greatest political attribute is she is great at amassing power in King's Landing. I mean, I, I love the agency that she had over Robert, this disgusting, vile creature, who, you know never loved her and was abusive and terrible. And at the end of the day, she didn't need him. Yeah. She killed him. She fed him to a boar. I, I, I just, I think I, you, people laugh when you're like, Cersei's a great feminist character, but it's true. She, she saw this shitty circumstance. She saw that John Aaron was on to her and she said, fuck it. I'm just going to kill them all. And, and the show, I mean, I, I hated the way that the show had them blow up the Septon because I thought it was a cheap way to just kind of reset the board and and get rid of and the idea of her being you know uh, queen didn't make a ton of logical <laughs> sense but I mean you just look at it and say this woman knows no no she fears nothing it's really I, I just I, the more I read the the more Cersei I read the more I yeah love I love her chapters they're insane she's insane and I love her like I absolutely love her and she is one of the many women that was sold like a broad mare right in the rebellion she was married off to yep. Robert for this alliance she suffers marital rape and abuse at his hands uh it was said when Robert you know would have his way with her drunkenly the next day there'd be bruises all over her and he would be acting shameful and like forget his actions the night before and I love this passage from a feast for crows when she is, you know, uh, getting getting intimate with Tyene of Mir. She requires Tyene as duty. She wanted to see if it would be as easy with a woman as it had always been with Robert. Ten thousand of your children perished in my palm, Your Grace. She thought, slipping a third finger into Mir. Whilst you snored, I would lick your sons off my face and fingers, one by one, all those pale, sticky princes. You claimed your rights, my lord, but in the darkness I would eat your heirs. Their rights. I mean, yeah. they have rights to their women. That's what the society pleads. Yeah, and they just, you know, it's it's marriage is not a not a two-way street, really, in any conventional sense in that in that world. And yet there she is 
you know, never, never, never allowing Robert to, you know, really hold one over her because she, she, she does. She gets the last laugh and Robert's terrible. And, you know, people can have so many opinions of, you know, Cersei's cruelty. And I, I don't, I don't really care to defend a lot of the horrible things she, she's done. But if you look at, you know, somebody who has to kind of be baptized by fire in the political shithole of King, King's Landing, you know, if, if that's, if that's the political game they've got to play, she, she's played it well. Yeah. Maybe getting a bit too paranoid in the process, but. And I, I would argue, I mean, I wouldn't say she's a feminist character per se. I would actually say she's pretty misogynistic. She hates women. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at Sansa. She hates her gender because of the limitations on being a woman. I mean, at the same time, though, through all this, she did murder her best friend at like age 10 because Malara Heatherspoon was into Jamie. So obviously Cersei is not a saint. However, she is one of the deepest, most complex characters in A Song of Ice and Fire. Very interestingly nuanced. Uh, She's bad, but you understand why she's bad and you have the full sketch, which I love. And she really does, you know, they, they, they force her through the ringer mm-hmm. i mean it's hard to I don't, I don't know if the whole walk of shame thing is, is Fucked up. it is and it's it's you know a lot of people i guess would say oh justice is served but that's so excessive and fuck and just fucked up and it violates every notion of privacy that we have forcing her to do something forcing a queen to do something like that i mean the the notion well it doesn't fit the crime is the bigger thing no and it's just needless needless humiliation that that doesn't serve any broader purpose and you know it it it, it's just so messed up i i you know you read it and and you think oh yeah you know finally finally she's getting Oh, oh yeah no it's stupid though it's not I don't agree at all. I, it, I think it's like people that think Theon's torture was fulfilling what he had done. It, it, that was torture's not good is what George was trying to tell us. You know, he wasn't George isn't sitting there telling us like, haha, Cersei got fucked over. No, George is sitting there saying this walk of shame is also probably not good. Yeah, it's it's not it's not any sense of justice that that they would make somebody do something like that. And it's not even like her troubles are over either. She's got a trial. She's got to, you know, constantly just fight for fight for everything. And while people are making jokes that she's sleeping with Moonboy. Right. And, you know, this is where we made, you know, that talk about Ned. Well, Ned gave her it out. So, <laughs> yeah, it's it's and I also I've always loved the fact that uh, when it comes to when it comes to Casterly Rock, the idea that Cersei is always kind of well positioned to take over it because you know women, you know, in addition to all the the forced marriages that we've talked about, they're 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 not you know they're 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 given away. They're not given anything, and she she wants her she wants her she wants her home. Yeah, she doesn't want Tyrion or or Jaime to get it, and. She wants where her mother died, you know, she wants her home. And I uh I I, I hope she gets a happy ending. I doubt that's gonna No, happen, she's not. She's gonna die. <laughs> yeah. The Maggie the Frog. It's uh, she's gonna it's, die. It's, it's it's so and you've gotta wonder, like, for all the paranoia that she feels, if you if you have that that woman with all the prophecy and it's all coming true, I mean that's just gotta eat away at her. Oh yeah. It's like a like like a bad mushroom trip, like just Ugh. in the flesh constantly. Ugh. It's very uh, 
poor Cersei. Yeah. And 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 it's important that people can recognize, yeah, Cersei has done so many horrible things, although killing Robert, not one of them. And <laughs> you can still you can still feel something, you can still feel for a person. And, and this is, you know, something that George R. R. Martin just tries to remind us time and time again. It's just, you know, these things are not black and white. You can still feel for Cersei. You can still feel for people like Lysa, yeah. even if at the end of the day you don't like them and you know, they do terrible things. I agree. Well, so Robert, you know, Robert gets kind of forgiven his drunk. I and mean, he's like, what good did he ever do as a ruler? Like nothing. Robert could have been good at one time, a long time ago. He missed that boat very quickly. Yeah. And people just say, oh, he's got his war hammer. Ah, yeah. He beats up, you know, for all the, you know, I, I, the whole battle with Rhaegar. I mean, as much of a sort of epic duel as that had been, seems kind of unfair Kind of a he's a retired fat jock. Yeah, and he's got to, you know, beat up on the guy who wants to, you know, sit by the tree and draw. <laughs> Let us on to Brienne. Brienne of Tarth, the fandom's favorite uh, shipper, seemingly. She's got uh, Jamie, she's got Tormund, and she's also got the Hound, if that wasn't enough. Ew, I want you to give me the addresses of those that ship her with the Hound. When it comes to the Hound especially, the the notion of him getting kind of a happy-ish ending in A Feast for Crows is so... You know, I don't... I don't. He's obviously a, a complex character, but I like the idea that he can maybe put his past behind him. I've, Clegane Bowl has always been pretty much my least favorite fan theory, besides like R plus L equals D. Yeah, the one thing that I've written about is that uh, I guess people have named it for me it's that uh it's not gonna be clegane bowl it's gonna be clegane soul it's going to mirror back to of course when he asked Arya if she knew where the heart is he's going to put his brother to death out of mercy if he does kill him it's not going to be clegane bowl it's going to be putting a dog to sleep that's a good uh that's a good way to look at it because i mean he's not really sir robert strong is uh <sighs> that's a tough one to deal with uh I would say he's a mad dog. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, that's another like situation where you can say, okay, the mountain is about as bad as they come. And it's, it's not, it's not in, it, you know, it's humane to look at that situation and say, yeah, it's fucked up that that guy was experimented on to that degree. Like, uh, yeah, the way they treat Bane in the Batman and Robin, the Joel Schumacher one. Uh, they put all the shit in you know i may have said like you know cersei's walk and theon's torture those are obviously crimes that don't fit or punishments that don't fit the crimes but for gregor he can burn yeah he's garbage he is a garbage person people try to defend him and say he gets migraines and i'm like um (laughs) yeah last time i had a migraine i didn't rape a woman or cut her in half or or put your uh Put your brother's face to a exactly, fire. exactly. So, yeah, Brienne though would never put anyone's face to the fire unless they truly deserved it. Thank God's. Brienne, she's um, her her journey, especially in a feast for crows. I think I think like a lot of people, when you do your first read, I approached a feast for crows with a little apprehension because you know there's no Tyrion, there's very little John, there's no Danny, and you're sitting there thinking to myself, okay. Where are all these characters I care about? And, you know, Brienne's point of view chapters, they give you so much perspective on a character who, 
you know, for all the characters who are forced into these uh, arranged marriages, here's a person who sort of grows up thinking like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm horrible. I'm ugly. I Nobody's going to like me. It's just, it's so sad. Yeah, it is. And it's also sad because on that same level that we get, you know, people not respecting female characters in A Song of Ice and Fire unless they carry a sword on them. Uh, people don't respect Brienne, who is one of the female warriors of A Song of Ice and Fire, who carries a sword on her because of her looks. It's that double-edged, no pun intended, sword uh, that, you know, you're a woman and you're a warrior, but you're also not hot and your boobies aren't decked out in red Sonya wear. Like, what? <laughs> what do you want? You know, what do you want from me? It's especially uh, when she has her battle in A Feast for Crows and she gets, uh, you know, cut cut up. And uh, George R. R. Martin has a habit of when he's describing characters, especially Theon, or he just he, he goes straight to the sort of the grossest depiction of what has happened to them possible. And he he kind of like grinds that into your memory. Yeah. And with Brienne, just all of the stuff about her looks, it's just like, you know, I really feel for her. And she, you know, to to make all the matters worse is if she doesn't have like enough, just, you know, sad shit going on. She was initially in love with a gay dude. <laughs> yeah. That sucks. Life happens, but that sucks. It's like, you look at her and you're like, of course that happened. Like, you know, she's, she, we've got to make sure she catches uh, zero breaks whatsoever. Yeah. Poor, poor, poor Brienne. Brienne. And everyone seems to have a path for her, right? Like not only did she fall in love with a gay dude, but his whole entire court, like people that hung around him, uh, they all played trickery on her in the court she was hanging around. And all these guys were trying to like bet who could get in her pants basically first, right? They were like, oh, I'm going to yeah. get a dance with her and I'm going to get in her pants. And oh, oh, and it was a big joke of who could bed Brienne the Beauty. And that kind of bullying when you're a younger person is not something that goes lightly. Right. Like, I, I don't know about you. I'm guessing you, of course, uh, are probably a a worldly person like me that because of your interests, you were bullied as a kid. Most people are. And yeah. uh, Brienne was bullied like crazy. And I mean, it even goes as far as in A Feast for Crows, one of the people that helped Ling re ring lead the bullying fucking Heil Hunt is all, you should just marry me. You know, you could have a happy life with me. And she's like, ah, uh, you literally made fun of my looks to the whole court and had a whole group of people trying to fuck me for money. Like that's, it's fucked up. It's, it's beyond brutal. And it, 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 it's the kind of stuff that's just like, you know, there's, there's, you know, bullying that, you know, big strong men do for, you know, a, sort of like, you know, to get a laugh out of people. And there's just stuff that you just look and it's like, that's just done with the cruelest intentions. And that's just too, that's so often the story of Brienne. It's she, she not only can she not catch a break, but she's like pushed into the worst, worst situation possible. Yeah. And everyone seems to have a path chosen for her. Uh, and that's something that's very common in the thematics that we see in the story 
that the females have their paths chosen for them. Her father has a path chosen for her. Jamie has his own path chosen for her. The Lords of the Stormlands and Crownlands and Reach, you know, all have these ideas of what should be done with her as the Lady of Tarth, basically. And this is what makes searching for Sansa so much more admirable and honorable of Brienne, because where everyone thinks that this honor is crazy, a lot like you see with Dunk the Lunk, uh, Brienne takes her vows seriously. It's where her devotion for Renly kind of makes sense because he treated her like a human, not a freak for how she looked and not a freak for her skill in arms. Yeah, society doesn't give enough credit to the people who will just... You know, I, I, in some ways, I would be frustrated by Brienne constantly. Uh, I, the, it frustrated me the way the show brought Renly kind of back into the equation, sort of setting up Stannis' downfall in season five when he ha- when she hadn't really thought about him. But she does in the books. And, you know, Brienne's the kind of friend who, you know, isn't going to leave you for the bigger, better deal. She's loyal. And she knows she knows loyalty because she knows what it's like to, to have that take, you know, she knows what it's like to be taken advantage of. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it, it says a lot about how, you know, her, her as a character that Jamie, you know, gets the letter and, you know, it's Cersei or Brienne and he takes off to help her. Yeah. It says a lot about their bond. Yeah. And it, it, it also just, the, the whole bit with her and Podrick and, you know, Lady Stoneheart is so, uh, that 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 made me really feel for Brienne because of just the way that that uh, Catelyn had taken her in and said, you know, Renly's gone, but you can, you know, you still have something to fight for. You still have there's still good people yeah. that you can ally with. And then it's like, oh, you have my husband's sword. Of, of all the weird things for Lady Stoneheart to pick up on, yeah. Uh, she's like, oh, here's your Lannister sword. I'm I'm gonna, you know, remember when you were all honorable. I know you're looking for Sansa, but now I will kill you. And it's just, it's brutal. Yeah, it's really interesting to see where her story forks off, especially where Jamie's intersects with it. Uh, I think the first half of the wind's a winner. They're going to be a little busy dealing with the Riverlands for Lady Stoneheart. And uh, I'm sure she's going to task them. So they'll have one last outlaw adventure, kind of. Uh, that's going to be really cool. And I think we're going to see Jamie go to a darker place. I think eventually... Uh, I think Brienne will make her way north. She'll definitely get there before Jamie. She's on a mission and she will find a Stark girl, but I think it's going to be Arya that she finds first. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about that that path because she she kind of sort of falls, you know, after after losing Arya to the Hound at the end of season four, she then is able to, you know, go back and save the day with Sansa and Theon, which was great, but... That's obviously going to happen a lot differently in the books, and I'm certainly really excited for what happens to Brienne. She's my, as somebody who's who's stand fanas. Uh, I say fanas. Wow. Um, as somebody yeah, who's as, <laughs> as somebody who's been a big Stannis fangirl for so long, um, Renly Renly's always been a complicated character for me, but I, I've always I found him to be a very empowering person as a gay individual who. You know, there, 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 there's all these sort of uh, big societal roadblocks that people put uh, in place for people who are different. And Renly, you know, for whatever people think of him, deciding that he wants to be king. You know, if if you're if you're if you're different in the world, oftentimes that's how you have to succeed. You have to look at the world and say, ah, fuck it. 
I got a good shot at this. I got the Tyrells on my side. I'm gonna go and t- make a play for the make a play for the crown. Yeah. So uh, good on him. I kind of feel like the show actually had a great scene with Loris. It kind of gives you because we don't get that background in the books of why all of a sudden Renly thinks he's a good king and what he's been up to and who he hangs out with. We don't really get that until the second book when all of a sudden you're like, oh, he's in cahoots with the Tyrells. Uh, in the show, there's a scene that Loras kind of says like, oh, well, you'd be a great king. And you see the Tyrells kind of pushing at him to be king. I didn't love how they used Loras in that scene necessarily. However, I love the idea that it was the Tyrells that pushed at him to go for being king because they knew they had something to kind of get out of it. Yeah, and I think he, you know, it's, it's weird to think of what a... Uh... You know, the quote that, uh, is it Donald Noy who says, you know, uh, Robert was iron? And, uh, yes. Stan- I mean, it's Stannis is steel and Renly's copper. You know, he's shining mm-hmm. to look at. Um, but, you know, it, it and it says something about Renly, too, that Brienne had that level of affection for him. And it says something also, I, I, I always, I've always really loved how she asked for a seat in his Rainbow Guard, which I know George R. R. Martin has denied uh, that being a, it's about you know, uh, it's a total LGBT symbol. Shut up, George. Of course, yeah, of course it is. Um, and it, it it it's okay that he did that. I I think it's kind of funny myself. Yeah, but, me too. Um, the idea that the the idea that there wasn't. I actually at one point researched the origins of not only just the rainbow flag, but just the the comparisons and those, those existed for a long time. Oh yeah. Um, but you know, it makes sense that Brienne would. In terms of, you know, strong female characters, there's nothing stronger to say, oh, here's this, you know, here's this quote-unquote man's man's work, you know, to quote the father in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, <laughs> and says, you know, I, I want this for myself. And I, I just, I love that. I love I love the, the empowerment that she was able to, you know, see a job like that. She didn't get to obviously be in the Rainbow Guard for very long before she was kicked, you know, before it was dissolved, but... um. Maybe there will be another rainbow guard for her to join. Right. I mean, if anything, she's welcome to be the sworn shield of the queen in the north. Yep. Which, uh, of course, is going to happen to Sansa because John, I didn't really like how the show made John, you know, king. I mean, I, I get why they did it, but Sansa, you know, I, I would love, I would love, a, you know, great, powerful ending for Sansa. I think in the end, she'll at least be ruling the north one way or another, if not ruling the north, the Riverlands and the Erie. Uh, yeah, hopefully. Um, <laughs> hopefully. One, one can only hope that Santa catches a fucking break. If for any other reason, then the fanboys can look and go, ah, why? God, why? I can't wait for Littlefinger to die in the books, too, so that I could just yeah. be like, suck it, suck it, suck it, suck yeah. it. You know, just like dancing all over the place. Like, told you so, I told you so. I can't wait because that prophecy will come true. And every single person that's like, the prophecy was about Sweet Robin's doll can just fuck right off they could just go yeah they can that go. would be that would be lovely uh yep. i think we're close to your uh favorite the person i i honestly i i can't even really think of a Dane and i'll think of chloe i i knew that Aww. you were associated with that character like even Buddy. before i yeah i Aww. and she's Aww. a great character she's a really she's a i love all of those characters that are 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 there and we don't know a heck of a lot about them but it, it kind of from a just a fandom perspective you're allowed to it allows you the opportunity to 
think of all the different ways that Ashara Dane was the best and that Ned didn't deserve her, Howland d- didn't deserve her, and, you know, all of those people. And the creepy shit with uh, with Sir Barristan, good God. Oh, yeah. That was a... Uh, I have a lot of people that were surprised when I've really brought that up that are like, wow, I never thought about that. But I've analyzed, like, way too deeply about Ashara Dane. I've written... So far, I'm on part two out of five. I plan on writing three more parts of this essay series someday before I die. I don't know when, but writing's hard. If you guys haven't done it, try it. It sucks. And uh, I've written a lot of words about a Chardin, like several bajillion words. And basically, there's not a lot, right? There's 11 by name mentions of Ashara in the books. There's a lot that we can gather from reading in other people's plots. Like Barristan, for example, is one of the more obvious ones. However, you even learn from Tyrion's, like when he talks to Doran and you learn that the Martell siblings, Elia and Doran, or sorry, when he talks to Oberyn and you learn that the Martell siblings, Oberyn and Elia, made a trip to house dane's lands over in starfall uh in their little trip to go find people to marry for them so just some interesting tidbits that once you add dates up you kind of figure ashara had to be anywhere from 15 to 21 at the youngest and oldest during the tourney at heron hall barristan barristan was 45 yeah you and you know it's it's especially it's easy to see into the mindset of Sir Barristan and just sort of thinking, you know, he's a guy who's had, I want to be the hero. Yeah. And he said, he said, he said monogamy sort of not, uh, he said chastity essentially forced upon him for so long that, that his mind is kind of warped into thinking that, Oh yeah, here are my good old, you know, the good old days. Yeah. Here was this person. And had it not been for my white cloak or. Yeah. I would have banged out that 15 year old. Yeah, and you can be like, yeah, sure, there you go, buddy. You know, don't, don't, don't leave him alone in uh, the room <laughs> with Danny because uh, it's just it's it's so she she's like I, I hate using the term manic pixie dream girl because there's mm-hmm. so many there's so many that's what I call her though she's Westeros this manic pixie dream girl. Yeah, you can just imagine that if if HBO is running out of uh, prequel series to do, they can do just like a film. And have like Ned, Brandon, Howland, and Ashara, and maybe Sir Barristan off in the off in the distance, and then they play like the, the Bachelor, the Shin. yeah. <laughs> and they have this soundtrack that's just you know light, light coffee house rock. Oh and, my god, straight up like the Garden State. Yeah, and then you know Ned, Ned, uh, Brandon, and Ashara climb to the top of Heron Hall, and they're screaming off of it. Oh my god, that's, uh, that's it. That's the movie. That's a TV to movie. <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's Ashara is just such a such a fun character to think about because I mean, do do you think that she was the the mystery knight, the knight of laughing tree? No, that was Liana. That's practically yeah. canonical. <laughs> I've always I always like think about Ashara and Howland in, in in tandem with each other just just by token of the fact that they're kind of the two characters we know nothing about. That's exactly what it is, though. She so. You have Rhaegar and Lyanna, right, as the main romance of the series, but you have all these children that were born at the same time as John. You have Rob that was born to Catelyn and Ned. You have this web of people. And you also have Mira Reed, who's the same age as them. And it's someone you don't think about, right? It's you don't think about Mira Reed's mom. You just think Howland Reed's Ned's best friend. Well, it doesn't hurt anyone's plot to have Ashara still alive. It doesn't hurt anyone to have Ashara 
be the mother of Mira Reed or Jojen. And that's kind of a nice plot that I think people should look more at. There's so much in the books that could point to it, especially because Howlin' Reed is the one watching Ashara during the tourney at Hall. And not only that, but every single person that talks about Ashara talks about her haunting eyes or her sad eyes. But Howlin' Reed says they're laughing which tonally is a huge change. And I know that doesn't sound like a big difference, but every person that talks about her eyes being haunting or sad is guilty about Ashara because Ashara kind of is this character that you can pretty much assume is stuck between loyalties, right? Her brother serves Rhaegar Targaryen. Her family serves the Martells. And she's friends with these Northern people now after the tourney at Harrenhal. Yeah, and it... it you know, the, the, the pairing of Ned and Ashara just hasn't ever really done that much for me because I've always thought of Ned as, you know, not, not necessarily worthy of Ashara. Howland, Howland's a fun, he's a fun character to think of, especially the way that he's kind of introduced into them. He's being bullied and they kind of all rally around him. He's yeah. like the like the, the kid brother of the northern northern clan. And yet, you know, he, he's the one the one figure up there who's still really looking out for them even though we haven't seen him yet well and that's the thing is ashara is taken off the page and all we have is that she's this purple herring for john's parentage right that's why she exists in the text to people that cattle and thought she was maybe john's mom and other people did just in case john came out looking like rhaegar uh they could just pawn it off on ashara so I don't know, there's all these people that are projecting their feelings and their bastards on Ashara, right? You have Ned, you have Barristan, you have all this shit of, oh, she was dishonored by a Stark, when in reality, we don't know what happened to her. We don't actually have that information. She was literally only at court from the time of the tourney at Harrenhal until a few mo- until after Elia had her next baby, which was about six months later. Aegon. Yeah, and it's... It's hard to see Barristan really being in a position where he would have seen that. Or what what seems far more likely is that he saw something that he was then, you know, doing his projections. I mean, for all the honor of the King's Guard, it seems like a really boring job. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't seem like something that anyone would want to do. And I imagine he's had a lot of time with his thoughts over the past. I forget exactly how old he is, but it's been a he's he's been around for a long time and he's got really nothing but his you know ancient memories of you know a time before he had to serve robert which had, had to been like the worst job ever and he had his loser the that was the point where the king's guard got increasingly filled with losers yeah absolutely like, robert's uh, reign is when that started you know robert everybody died during the rebellion so robert had to uh just hire some bitches hope for the best Okay, let's do Renera Targaryen, Ooh, the yes. one that people, the one that people who are only show watchers will look at and say, "Who the hell's that?" That's somebody from. You should pick up a copy of Fire and Blood if you haven't, because the Dance of the Dragons, which was mentioned last in the show in that horrible episode with Shireen, Ugh. where she got a little, where uh, she helped her dad. What a uh-huh. good kid! She loves doing chores for her dad. Oh, I'm like, I love you, toasted marshmallow Shireen. 
Yeah, I almost like I really I struggle to even like look at gifts of, of that. I was honestly physically sick when I watched that. It, when it started happening, me and my best friend were in the room together and we looked at each other. We're like, no, no. And like I was like dry heaving. I was like, are you shitting me right now? It was just physically like I was sick. Yeah, It sucked. I was actually for that episode. I was on a flight back from uh, I was still living on the East Coast and I was on a flight back from L.A. and I land. And it's just text messages and Twitter. Oh, no, no. Like, you're going to you're going to have the like, this is like the worst thing possible for you. And I I stayed up and I was just like, you know, as somebody who really liked the the trajectory of, of Stannis in the show, post watchers on the wall. Yeah. I was like, oh, nope. Back to back to back to this is back to having to just defend him at every every corner. But I don't really I've kind of grown gr- a little yeah. kind of grown out of that. I th- I think uh, a lot of people have grown up. My boyfriend is the same way. He loves Stannis, but he's grown up a lot on Stannis, it seems, because it- it's just this nuance. You have to accept that, yeah, Stannis is the king who cared, and you love Stannis and Stannerman for life, but he's flawed, and he's just like a lot of these other rulers. He's very flawed, and he's going to burn his fucking uh, kid. God. I've talked to Emmett about about that because I the fact that the fact that characters take so long in the books to get from one place to another and the the way that the snowstorm is just so big. um, I'm thinking to myself, okay, maybe maybe Shireen dies to resurrect John, but it's set up perfectly. Mm. I I, I think I think to say that to say that it's, it's not likely that Stannis will do that in the books is just delusion at this point. And there's so many people that cling to that, and they also cling to this idea that, no, Melisandre's going to do it, Val's going to push her, or Solis is going to push her, and Stannis won't even be there. No, honey, I'm sorry. Stannis will be there, and Stannis will give the command. Ugh. That's what's going to happen. And it sucks to say it out loud, and you and I both know it hurts to say that, yeah. but y'all know it's true. I, uh, well, uh, well, <laughs> let's... Let's let's hope not, but you're probably right. I know. Um, but <laughs> Rhaenyra, Rhaenyra Targaryen is somebody who, I mean, if there's if there's any, you know, a lot of characters are a victim to sexist circumstances, but I mean, the Targaryens lost their dragons because they didn't want to put a girl on the throne. They lost their their whole line was fucked beyond belief because they didn't want to deal with that man. If they had just had some fucking humility, like, here's the deal. So the Dance of the Dragons, we've covered this on our Patreon episodes on Girls Gone Canon pretty thoroughly now. We're getting towards the end of it finally. It's like a fucking four-part <laughs> series. It never ends. Uh, we keep, like, going and we'll, like, do the episode. And at the end, I'll be like, we have to do one more episode, don't we? And Eliana will be like, yep, we sure do because we're still not done. Uh, it's very expansive. There's a lot added. George added a ton in Fire and Blood, so... As you suggested, please get Fire and Blood because there's that and there's so much more. It's a really good history book. Uh, Dance of the Dragons. Viserys has kid. He has Rhaenyra. Rhaenyra, his daughter that he has with Emma Aaron, he names her his heir. And he marries Alicent Hightower after Emma Aaron has long gone dead. And eventually he starts having kids with Alicent Hightower. Well, as you know about most people that live in the Reach, they're all upjumped little shits. And they have ambitions that are way too high and they shouldn't. And they should sit the fuck down. But Alicent Hightower and her father, Hand Otto Hightower, uh, 
had big ambitions for her. So she marries him. She tries to push her son's claims. Doesn't work. Eventually he dies. And the night he dies, like all hell breaks loose. Allison like kills a beesberry because he wants to be like, no, no, Rhaenyra's the heir. And she's like, oh, no, bitch. My son, Aegon II, is the heir. So moral of the story, in the beginning, it's all Rhaenyra's claim. And that's fucked up. And they stole her claim. And they fucking... The Greens sucked. They broke it into factions. There's the Greens and there's the Blacks. The Blacks are Rhaenyra's faction. The Greens are Allison's. And it all boils down to dresses they once wore in court at a feast, at one of Viserys' feasts. So they started being called the Princess and the Queen. Queen Allison Hightower and Princess Rhaenyra Targaryen. Rhaenyra kind of ended up obviously less than tasteful with some of the choices she made. She wasn't, uh, in the end, she really resembles Cersei. It's a very direct analog to Cersei. She is, you know, what, yeah. three bastard sons, you know, the strong sons, which are obviously Targaryens. They're strong, so they're bastards. Uh, three Targaryen bastards that she's trying to seat on the throne herself. Uh, very Cersei, major analog to Cersei, just Cersei with dragons. And I think we're going to see a lot of this come a dance or a dream of spring and the winds of winter with Daenerys and Aegon, but it was Rhaenyra's claim. Like this was, this was hers. This was that said they, they should have married. They should have married for the realm. So there was no civil war because of the feudal contract between peasants and like common folk. But like, still it was her claim. Fuck you. And it, it really bothers me. Uh, when I was doing my master's in English, we talked a lot uh, for the, really old old English literature. We talked a lot about how the old uh, parliament structure and the monarchs and the way that, like, the number one thing that a monarch was supposed to do beyond anything else, like, the really one thing that mattered was for them to carry the line, to have to have children. And she had yeah. proved that. And yet they still kind of try to do an Enron around her. <laughs> and it just, it, it doesn't, it's one of those things that you just look at it and you look at the carnage that was caused. I mean, this is like pre-Blackfire Rebellion, so we didn't see too much like inner uh, Targaryen conflict. But you look and it's just like, it, it was kind of a case of the, 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 the Greens deciding that, oh, if we're not going to win, we'll take our ball and go home. And they did that, except the ball was the dragons and it, they all got killed. And it's just, it's so frustrating that they couldn't just, you know, let a woman be queen. What, like, who the, who the hell cares? Yeah. It's not like, I mean, for all the people who are against, you know, Danny and all of that, I mean, she's got her dragons and I think there's a bit of deference that's caused because of that. I mean, these Targaryens we talked about a little earlier, they, they really, they're like, otherworldly with their you know beautiful hair and their purple eyes and yet somebody looked at you know that situation and said nope 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 nope, nope no women just it's it's frustrating beyond belief and i know that like she's the one character that's not really in the main chronology but i really wanted to talk about her because if you think about just all the injustices that women have suffered through in the show i mean in the books it's hard not to like think of that one as just like not only is this an injustice due to a woman, but it screwed everybody. Yeah, absolutely. It really did. It's a, uh, so many people died that shouldn't have. It, it sucks to say like, she should have, you know, set her pride down and married Aegon the second. Like I don't, I wouldn't, I totally get it. I would not have done that. However, to protect the people that they swear to protect, she should have. 
Yeah. I mean, definitely. think of all the dra- that's the thing is people say that Aegon the Third was the dragon's bane because, you know, he was so afraid of dragons after watching Rhaenyra get eaten by one by Aegon the Second. But at the same time, like they were already all dead. Like there were barely any dragons left. There were just hatchlings. They were all weak and small. Uh, the the dance of the dragons killed all the dragons. That was where the dragons really truly died. I, I've always I wrote a paper on it. That I presented at a conference a couple of years ago. But just kind of the notion of of how little power the sort of centralized government in Westeros has. Because I mean the Kremlins are really just not that big. No, they're not. But and they're not important either. No, but, you know, the Targaryens were able to have all that hold on it because dragons, who wants to go up against dragons? It's like, you know, it's a situation like North Korea. They, they're they like, they're trying to get nuclear weapons so nobody screws with them, but they're so small. It's like, you know, it's a big, uh, for, for the Crownlands to have power, they need the dragons. And yet they, they just didn't think it through. It's really, it's frustrating, but. Yeah, you know now now Danny gets to come back and restore, bring balance to the force, or something like that. Just in time for John to deal with it when she dies in childbirth. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Oh, I'm a little jaded since the show starts in what ten days, eleven days. Oh yeah, Ugh. yeah. Show it's uh, it's hard not to be. But um, real jaded. Mira Reed is somebody that the show hasn't really done justice to, and she's not all. coming back. Did you know that? I did not know that, but that's a bummer, especially... Thank you for being with me. Solidarity. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, it's always kind of... The whole the whole Sam figuring out the R plus L equals J is, was, was... I mean, I was so done with the Citadel after they cure Sir Jorah with Luberderm and a pair of tweezers. Like, Grayscale's this, you know, like disastrous disease that he's like, oh, I'll just go to CVS and cure Sir, Sir Jorah's grayscale. <laughs> Let me just get some tweezers. Yeah. So, I mean, at that point, I was done with it. And then it's like, oh, he stumbles upon that. Like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. How, yeah. like, wh- where's Howland Reed? And I keep saying, I would always say to people, where's Howland Reed? And the answer <sighs> is, they don't care where Howland Reed is. No. Nope. They, they don't, don't care, care where. Yeah. And it, it I, I, I feel like, and, and the real, the real injustice about, Mira is that I think because Jojen, the actor, left the show to go do the Maze Runner, um, they just they like threw the baby out with the bathwater, and they're just like, yeah. oh well, if there's no man, we 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 need to get rid of her, and you know, and that's the story of every one of Bran's companions. Hodor needs to go hold the door. Uh, Summer needs to get killed because they don't want to pay for the CGI, <laughs> and just fuck Mira. Also, it's like you're looking at it like, okay. I do I do think that there is something there. There are some of those bits of that plot that are going to happen in the book pretty soon. I think probably second or third brand chapter, we're going to see the cave not be safe anymore. Uh, but I think, obviously, as everything that goes with George, it will be written far better. It will be contextually just more pleasing. Uh, I assume this is kind of how I view it. It's like that line that we get in the brand chapter with old Nan about the last hero that, you know, it was so cold that his sword broke, his horse died, his dog died, his friends died. Like, that's what it's like up there for him as the last hero, uh, which we have all this monomythic language. You know, you have John with the, the Azora High slash last yeah. hero kind of imagery, Bran as well, because he's got that Bran in the Builder and last hero imagery going on and this magical quality. Uh, it's really interesting to see them embody it. And I do think 
Mira Reed may get sent home. She might not have a role that large after Bran comes home. It wouldn't surprise me. I think she's not going to get her due on either spectrum. Um, but I do think we are going to see Howland in the books. There's no way we won't. George has said we will. And I think it will be in the last book, though. I don't think it'll be in The Winds of Winter. I think we're going to see a dream of spring. I think that John is going to go south to retrieve Ned's bones. I think we'll see a stark funeral up in Winterfell. Uh, I think that's the whole point of him getting those bones. And at the same time, he's going to learn about his parents from the only people left that know them. Howland Reed and Gianna Reed. Sam's not going to like, you know, find it while, you know, scrolling through. I mean, how many books? It wouldn't surprise me if Sam did find the annulment. Cause I do think, I'm sorry. I know people yeah. hate it. It's going to be better in the books. It was definitely done in the show, but it's more than likely that John is the legitimate son of the throne. I mean, that is what it is. That's the whole point of all um, these chapters of him saying, like, I could never be the Lord of Winterfell. My mother had no place for me. Yada, yada, yada. Who am I? Well, in the end, that's who you were. You know, and that whole idea of that, like, the man makes the ruler. Ruling doesn't make the man. Uh, he, You know, heavy is the crown. John will wear it well because he never wanted that cup to pass to him. He just had it passed to him. Yeah, so hopefully Mira gets... I mean, she she's so important to their whole quest up north. You know, Jojen's kind of doing his thing, and Bran is taking advantage of Hodor, and there she is saying, you know, we gotta get food, we gotta do this. I she's, hope Mira you know, gets to go home and be warm. I hope she gets to sit in front of a fire yeah. and eat some frogs. And then her nice yeah, swamp. Yeah, maybe smoke that good gray water watch hydro. You know, just chill out. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully Holland hasn't swapped it <laughs> Bitch, then, you know he has. <laughs> no, that's what he's sitting. He's sitting, listening to vinyl, just not. Dude, uh, you know him and Ashara are the most hippie parents in the world, right? Like they've got to yeah. be like no shoes, just fucking bare in the swamp every day, catching frogs, like smoking pot. They've got like a crazy bong made out of I don't know what they made it out of some freaking like pussy willows. I don't know. I don't know what they got down there, but they're doing that. <laughs> they're they're hippie parents for sure. Well, speaking of the North, we have uh, Lady Dustin, who really is a... She's she's a fascinating character that I, I guess... Well, she's not in the show at all, but um, the books... The Theon chapters with her are, are... I remember at the time thinking to myself, okay, finally Theon has somebody to talk to who maybe is not the nicest person in the world, but isn't going to you know cut off his limbs, and you know maybe Theon gets a break, and here's somebody who, like Lysa, has a lot of legitimate grievances with the Starks. I mean, Ned Ned really didn't do right by no. Lady Dustin. And, and you can say, okay, you know, he can't, you know, he doesn't have a horse full of bones and whatnot, but it's, it's also on the flip side, not unreasonable of Lady Dustin to say, fuck him. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Lady Dustin, like, she's this widower who gets to keep her status in the North because Roos had married Bethany, her sister, and Bethany died. She's the last daughter of her generation, pretty much, in the Rills. And so she's the widower Lady Dustin right now. And she claims she hates the Starks because she could never be one. She was hooking up with Brandon before Brandon was betrothed to Catelyn. 
That's her whole thing. And then, of course, the insult to injury is that Ned called Lord Dustin off to war when he went to the rebellion and they went south. And after the Tower of Joy and Lyanna, they uh, they all kind of, you know, died in that battle, that skirmish before he got in there. And he had to bury them. He made cairns and buried them and did not bring his bones back. Lady Dustin is so offended. She's so mad. She, A, could never be a Stark, and B, the Starks never respected her. She never, yeah, there's no mutual respect there. Yeah, and she's got to be also somebody who looks at the whole Southern ambitions and says, you know, typically speaking... The head of, you know, the head of the North or the head of the Reach would marry a person in, you know, one of the other noble houses up there. That was just the way it was always done. And it's a smart way to keep your bannermen in line because, you know, you're you're showing them some love in return. You're not, you know, looking for the bigger, better deal somewhere else. And Lady Dustin, you know, could have had Brandon. And I, I think there was probably, I mean, the way she spoke of him, I, I, I wrote the... I am old now, a dried up thing, too long a widow, but I still remember the look of my maiden's blood on his cock the night he claimed me. I think Brandon liked the sight as well. A bloody sword is a beautiful thing. Yes, it hurt, but it was sweet pain. I mean, you can maybe think, okay, she's an old woman sort of fantasizing about a guy who, you know, is dead and, and you know, it's easy to it's easy to turn that situation into something that maybe is uh, a little more hyped up than what really happened, but... Not not too dissimilar from Sir Barristan thinking about Ashara. I mean, aside from the obvious that Lady Dustin was with Brandon, but she she is kind of glorifying the dead. Um, she has really legitimate grievances to be angry that this is the way her life turned out. Yeah, there's this passage in that same chapter in the Turncloak with Theon. The day I learned that Brandon was to marry Catelyn Tully, though, there was nothing sweet about that pain. He never wanted her, I promise you that. He told me so on our last night together, but Rickard Stark had great ambitions too. Southern ambitions that would not be served by having his heir marry the daughter of one of his own vassals. Afterward, my father nursed some hope of wedding me to Brandon's younger brother, Eddard, but Catelyn Tully got that one as well. I was left with young Lord Dustin until Ned Stark took him from me. Uh, and she has some sort of like almost alternate plan, it seems, you know, during these Theon chapters, she seems very team Bolton and Theon's trying to figure her out at the same time that we're trying to figure her out. Right. And she's yep. just very secretive. Uh, you get the scene with them in the crypts where, you know, she's just so mad at them at all the Starks and she's looking around all coolly and Theon, you know, and her are talking and she's like, you know, same reason you hate them can never be one. Yeah, she really... I I think in a lot of ways, the interaction between Roos and Lady Dustin give, she, you know, she, as scary as he is, and as certainly as terrifying as Ramsey is, she, she approaches him as kind of, kind of an equal as somebody who says, you know, okay, the old regime is gone, but, you know, just because you did some dirty things doesn't mean that we all have to respect you too. Respect is still kind of earned. Absolutely. And it, it. I mean, I, I would love to see her, you know, switch sides and help uh, House Manderley and House Umber. But, um, I mean, as, you know, it was smart of her to send as few troops to help Rob as she could because, I mean, you know, Ned gets captured. They all get their, they all get the bannermen together. If I'm in her position, I would say, oh, you know, what, you know, what's the, what's the cheapest housewarming gift I can bring to this party that I don't really like? anyone at yeah 
it, it makes it makes a lot of sense. She's 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 playing the long game, and the way that House Stark had always behaved toward really its own its own noble houses, it's it's surprising that they all went to help Rob after Ned had kind of really kept them at arm's length for his entire tenure, and his father before him had been setting up marriages to elsewhere. It was kind of like you know, if I were Lady. Lady Dustin, I would look at Rob and say, you know, have fun. Bye, Felicia. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you got to protect your people in the cold. And she she knows, she knows, you know, she knows she's got a pretty good thing going. She's one of the few, along with Major Mormon, she's one of the few women in charge. And she knows that, you know, decisions made by people before her prevented, you know, they took her husband. She got, who was pretty much at least her third choice. For <laughs> at a, least. A, Yeah, and she didn't even get that. And she's, you know, seen relatives die under dubious circumstances. She hates Ramsey. She knows that Ramsey, you know, she knows she knows her sister was was, uh, you know, left to pretty dubious circumstances. And she wants I think she really we know that the North is like tired and sick of war by a dancer dragons. But it's good to have her perspective. It was kind of like, hey, I didn't even want the war. And I'm gonna I'm gonna try to do my best, but uh, you know she's trying to make the most of the circumstances mm-hmm. she's given. Absolutely. I, I I would love to see a scene with her and Stannis also because I don't think Stannis would really know what to do with her. I would like to see that that whole like in the Blackwater. I love that tease where Cersei's like, "Ugh, I have a better chance of you know fucking his horse than him." Yeah, Stannis. Um, it, it's frustrating because. I've always thought of him as a character who, you know, the very notion that Solis has her quote unquote Queen's men. If you think like if Robert, if people were telling him that Cersei was calling some of her guards Queen's men or a lot of other people, he would just, there'd just be this negative reaction. And and Stannis does, you know, he doesn't really seem to have a problem with it. Mel is obviously a big uh, part of his army. And yet, you know, there's no shortage of misogynistic, downright cruel, awful things he said. So it's 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 difficult. I I think a lot of people who look at Stannis as like this sort of uh, echelon of uh, justice, you know, w- want to see him as a, a egalitarian, but he's not. No, absolutely he's, not. He's a uh, he's still very flawed, as we discussed politically, economically, even. I mean, uh, he calls his wife woman. Which is kind of a derogatory term back then. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of, you know, he... The stuff he says about Gilly is horrible. We got those quotes. Um, It's... It's it's brutal, and I mean... It it, it, kind of goes back to just why this series is so great and why there's just so much written about it and talked about it. None of these characters are are black and white. They're, you know, regardless of whatever camp you want to... I mean, there's nothing really wrong with Ashardane. We can admit that. Yeah. Uh, she's pretty great. She's basically around, the best. But yeah, it, but and there's nothing wrong with Sansa either. But beyond that, um, she didn't do anything wrong. Um, <laughs> beyond... Be, beyond that, <laughs> beyond all the other people I'm going to include as, as not having done anything Ever. wrong, a lot of the... Yeah, um, there's just... You know, these these characters are complex. And when it comes to the women and why I wanted to do this episode in general is just, you know, they people celebrate Robert's achievements and they don't think like, hey, this dude was an asshole or, you know, Tywin gets all these fanboys who just 
Love uh-huh. the shit he did. And he's a horrible, horrible human being. He's may, he may be the worst of the worst. And, you know, when it comes to the women, they, they have all this emotional depth and complexity. And so many of them are, you know, much stronger and perform and do much greater things than they're ever given any credit yeah, for. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's just not fair. It's not a fair judging. It's not a fair call. You have all these people that, like, during Davos Fingers' Osaga Madness, you know, we always get those good matchups. If you haven't ever followed it, they do it during March Madness, and uh, they do Osaga of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones characters. And this year we had, yet again, a Stannis and Sansa matchup. And some of the comments that were I read during this were just like, wowza, just yikes, yikes.com, you know, uh, really bad, really bad. People don't say, you know, why is Jorah still around? They say, why is Sansa still around? As if, as if the fact that she, you know, has made it, you know, throughout all that shit that she's had to pull yeah. through. Surviving in King's Landing for two whole books. And she doesn't get, you know, Arya, Arya has got so many tricks up her sleeves, but Sansa's a survivalist. And I just, I've always loved that about, I mean, I, I, I like Arya a lot as a character too. Um, she, she, you know, her, her chapters in Bravos in particular are some of my fave. Um, I like the kindly man a lot, but for whatever reason, uh, Sansa is just such a, yeah, absolutely. The underdog, the little bird, you've got to admire the survivalist. You got to admire the person who had nothing, nothing going for them and still, still persists. Yeah. All, All, all of the, you know, to, to, you know, try and put a conclusion on this uh to put a conclusion on this episode the women have done so much even even the unlikable ones and and that's okay that characters like lady dustin or lysa or even cersei are unlikable because guess what fuck sir jorah he's awful um and you'll find no shortage of people who will defend you know this slave owner creepy pervert who's just disgusting and you know, women, women are, women get, you know, the, the, the shrill term is often thrown around at people and, and they're subjected to all these standards that we don't ask of men. And it's okay that the women, uh, that some of them are not that likable because at the end of the day, they're still, they still deserve to be looked at as, as the power players that they are. Yeah. They still breathe air. I mean, like, yeah. And Lysa Aaron really, you know, was a, was a force. They had the they ha- you know, there's that scene in uh, Storm of Swords, the small council meeting, where they're just kind of talking about, you know, how do we how do we deal with this person? That's a that that speaks to power. Yeah, absolutely, it sure does. So, uh, we want to do final thoughts. Do you have uh, final thoughts on what we've done? Yeah, this was fun. Uh, it, it's really great just to explore these characters, all the good and the bad of each of these ladies, their flaws, their successes. I think, like you said we don't really celebrate these ladies and some of their wins. I mean, even something that sounds small, I mean, people celebrate when Jamie Lannister farts. So it's, it's true. And he threw, you know, people are allowed to love Jamie. Jamie is a, you know, his, his arc is a great arc, but um, he does bad things in a game of Thrones, obviously. And he does bad things when he meets Cersei again. I mean, he does, you know, he works for the mafia. He takes the Riverlands away from its family and gives it to a a family that does nothing to deserve it. Yeah, he really, and people are allowed to like him. But, but if you're gonna, if you're gonna be one of the people who says, oh, Jamie's great. And, 
Oh, Catelyn, what a bitch. Um, you know, people really need to think about where they're coming from with that kind of mentality. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that's the that's the beauty of the series. There's so much depth to it. We need to, you know, George R. R. Martin in- includes a lot of sort of real world politics in it, in, in the way the world works in his beautiful world. But um, we need to, we need to, you know, we need to be fair with these characters because they're, they're so three-dimensional and they're a lot of fun. Yeah, they are. And I'm so glad that you let me come on for this one. This was a lot of fun. Oh, awesome. I really, this was, uh, I, I've wanted to do this episode for a while and I am so glad that, uh, we finally got to do it. I'm so glad that my podcast finally got up. I know, but you've been oh, putting some hard. great work into it. So hopefully this one comes out good too. Cause if not, you know, arrested. And that's our show for this episode. Thank you so much to Chloe for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. It's been an honor to have you. You've influenced my thinking on so many characters, including Ashara and Sansa. And it's just been a lot of fun to have a chat with you. Um, Do you want to tell us where we can listen to your work or read your work or see your work, all all, all the various... uh, You're big into cosplay also. Um, Thanks so much again for having me. It was such a blast coming on. Uh, You can find me at Girls Gone Canon, my podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, pretty much anywhere you would listen to a podcast, we are there. You can also find me on Twitter as at Lies and Arbor, and you can find me on my blog at liesandarborgold.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. I highly recommend checking out all of that. Chloe is really one of the one of the great A Song of Ice and Fire content creators we have. And we're lucky. Uh we're lucky to have all of your perspectives because, you know, they like to think of Game of Thrones as a, you know, there's so many, so many different guys providing perspective. It's nice to have somebody who just offers something that nobody else is talking about. So thanks again for coming on. It's been a real pleasure to have you. And to our lovely audience, thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time. (laughs) 